Hey everybody, I'm Shayna, and this is Real Twisted Sisters. So we have another patron to announce this week. Welcome Sam Sorrows. We hope you enjoy being a member of the Real Twisted Sisters Patreon. If you at home would like to become a member, go ahead and go to the website www.patreon.com slash realtwistedsisters. You'll get a couple options on there if you want to um, have a monthly membership or you can just donate any amount. Of course, anything you donate is greatly appreciated and is going, of course, to um, upgrade our equipment that we're using so our future podcasts will sound better for you guys. All right. Thanks again, Sam. We appreciate you. Now, this story involves the Sodder family, so let's get to know them a little bit better. George Sodder was born Giorgio Sadu, Sodu, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, S-O-D-D-U, in Sardinia, Italy. Him and his older brother migrated to the United States when George was only 13 years old. Now, throughout his life, he never really um, explains why he came over from Italy or why he went to the States. I would assume it's just for a better life, but he never really got into that. So we're not sure why just George and his brother came over. Well, George began working right away and he made his money by working on the railroads. After saving up enough money, he started his own trucking business where he would haul dirt, freight, and coal. He ended up meeting his wife, Jenny Cipriani. Was that good? I feel like that was really good. Jenny Cipriani, I'm sure that's how you pronounce it, who was the daughter of a store owner and who also migrated from Italy at a very young age. After they got married, they settled down in Fayetteville, West Virginia. They bought a large two-story house a little over two miles north of Fayetteville, outside of town, um, and they would go on to have 10 children in this home. They had their first child, a son named John, and their last child, a daughter named Sylvia, was born in 1943. At that time, George and Jenny's son Joseph had gone off to serve in the military, but the rest of the kids were still living in the house. George's business was very successful, and the Sodders were really well-respected around town. The family seemed very close. They seemed to have everything going for them. Um, They had their life together, and they seemed happy. So it is time to celebrate Christmas. It was December 24th in 1945, Christmas Eve. The family was all together except for their son, of course, Joseph, who was in the military. Uh, The children, I'm not sure if they were allowed to open all of their presents or just a few, but they they, they did have a few presents open that night. So, of course, you know, it's Christmas Eve. Kids are super excited. It's hard for them to go to sleep. So they asked their parents... Um, A few of the children, of course, some were a little bit older, but a few of the children asked their parents if they could stay up later than usual, just so they could have more time to play, to play with each other and to play with the new stuff they got. George and Jenny were hesitant at first, but after the kids' persistent begging, they gave in and just asked them, you know, to make sure they, they did everything. Shut down the house, turn off the lights, which is always fun, telling kids to shut off the lights. I remember having... Seabray's kids stay at my house and every, well, I started waking up in the middle of the night after every morning I would get up and all the lights would be on. And every night I would tell them, turn off the lights. 
Well, then I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, all the lights are on. God damn it. Shut off the fucking lights. But anyway, so that's what they have to ask the kids to do. Just, you know, turn down the house. Get everything ready to go to bed. Uh, so, yep, the kids were going to stay up a little bit later. Uh, George and Jenny went to bed at about 10 p.m. Uh, I believe Marion might have been working a little bit late that night. So she might have still been out at that time. But it's unclear reading the articles if she was in the house or not. But she was going to be staying there that night. So she got home at some point. So it was good night, sleep tight. Christmas was the next day. Everything was seemed right as rain. Well, at about 12.30 a.m., the phone at the Sodder house rang. Jenny woke to answer it, and when she did, she heard a female voice on the other end of the line, and they asked for an unfamiliar name. Jenny told the woman that she must have the wrong number. She said that this woman gave off a weird sort of laugh, and then Jenny just hung, hung up on her. Jenny did say also that it sounded as though the woman was possibly at a party as there was a lot of laughing and ruckus going on in the background. I mean, you know, what do you do? Jenny thought it was probably a prank call or, you know, just somebody really did have the wrong number. Not a huge deal. So she hung up. But on her way back to bed, she noticed that the kids hadn't done anything that she asked. Of course, all the lights were still on. The curtains were all open. The front door was unlocked. So, I mean, at that point, you're not going to wake up all the kids and be like, do what I told you to do. So she starts turning off all the lights and notices that Marion is at home and she's asleep on the couch. This is a, her, their 17-year-old daughter, Marion. Well, so Jenny takes a few minutes to shut down the house and goes back to bed. Well, right as she's about to fall back to sleep, she hears a loud thud on the roof followed by a rolling sound. Like some, you know, like how the, an acorn will hit your roof or whatever and roll down. Um, you know what again what do you do it could be anything well jenny fell back into her slumber and an hour later she was woken again only this time it was from smoke bellowing into their bedroom the Sodders jumped up grabbed sylvia their youngest daughter who was in a crib in their room and took off through the house to get outside now you know back in the day the houses were just made of like timber that's it that's they were all wood and they caught fire quickly so the Sodder parents with Sylvia are trying to run out the house. And as they're running out the house, they're yelling for their other kids um, to make sure that they know, like, there's an emergency, there's a fire, get out of the house. Well, the house was quickly engulfed in smoke and flames. Um, the fire had already swept through all of the downstairs rooms. When they got outside, they saw Marion and two of their sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., we're all outside, um, of course. So then it's the parents, George and Jenny, their youngest daughter, Sylvia, who they had carried out with them, their daughter, Marion, and two of their sons. The two boys had actually shared a bedroom upstairs and were able to flee the house, thankfully, with only singed hair. They said they did yell for their other siblings who were up there. But of course, you know, there, there just wasn't enough time to go into everybody's room and get them out or to make sure that they were out. So... When George realized that five of his children were still inside the house, he broke a window to try to get back in. He couldn't see anything, though. The smoke was way too thick. It, You know, the fire had just become way too large. Uh, you know, so one, he did get inside but couldn't see anything, so quickly had to get back outside. So, he, you know, he's trying to think of what else he can do. So he goes to run and get his ladder, to his ladder that he always kept in the same spot. He was going to try to reach the second story window to try to get in there. Well, strangely enough, his ladder was not where he left it. It's just gone. He's like, all right, next plan. You know, he's thinking real quick. 
He then ran off to start up one of his trucks. You know, he was a truck driver, so he's got big trucks. So he was going to drive up one of the trucks, jump on top of it, and try to get up into the window. He's got two of these trucks. He runs over to these trucks. First one he gets in, it doesn't start. Second one he gets in, doesn't start. Neither of them start. George claimed that both of those trucks ran fine the day before. I mean, he uses them for work, right? Like, what was wrong with the truck? So um, he ended up trying to get some water out of a well, but the well was frozen. Uh, keep in mind, this is winter. So he's, out, he's like, what the fuck am I going to do? He can't get back into the house. Well, George is racking his brain, trying to find out a way to get back in. Marion, or get his children out. Marion, his daughter, was running to the neighbors to call the fire station. However, there was no response from the operator. Another neighbor of theirs had attempted to call the fire department, too, after seeing the blaze, but they couldn't get through. What the fuck? I mean, I know it's it's back 1945. Things were a lot different, but fucking A, people. They need help out here. The neighbor decided he was just going to drive the short distance. Like I said, they were only about a little over two miles out of town, so he got into his vehicle, ran into town to alert the fire chief, F.J. Morris. Just sounds like a 1945 name, especially if a fire chief or like a police chief, F.J. Morris. Morris started the phone tree system, which is what they used back then. So it was like the chief would call one firefighter, then that firefighter would call the next, and that firefighter would call the next. It was just like, a you know, a phone tree. So it took a little bit of time for them to get out there. However, it probably shouldn't have taken seven hours. They didn't get out to the house until 8 a.m. By the time they got there, the it had the house was gone. It had been reduced to a pile of ash. There was nothing left. There was nothing that could be saved. There was essentially no more fire to put out. So why the fuck even show up, you assholes? Excuse my language. George and Jenny, of course, are devastated. They're staring at their demolished house. It's down to a pile of rubble and... They believe that their five children have been lost in the fire. Their five children have been lost in the fire. Children's. Uh, so their five children, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, were all gone. They were, of course, I'm sure in shock and extremely confused. And it was Christmas Day, keep in mind. So picture this, 8 a.m. on Christmas morning. It's cold outside your house is completely gone and you, your five children have died in that fire. Oh, it's giving me goosebumps. Well, the family stared into the basement hole, which was all that was left of the home. But there was absolutely no remains. There was, there was nothing. I mean, besides, of course, the ash and rubble and then chunks of tin. We'll get into that. But F.J. Morris, the fire chief, walked through the basement, now filled with ash and rubble, and found nothing. No bones, no teeth, no organs, nothing. Well, it would come out later that the chief did find a few small bones and pieces of organs, but didn't reveal it to the family. Why, you ask? I do not know. He was probably trying to keep them from the pain and agony of knowing their five children died on Christmas Day in a fire. But, I mean, they're, they're standing right there. They were in that fire. They know what happened. Morris, don't be an asshole. So, you know, they're, they're not seeing anything. The family believes that nothing was found because nobody tells them anything. So Morris did tell them that he believed the fire had burned so hot that it incinerated everything. And 
there was nothing left of the bodies. It the just incinerated the bones, teeth, everything was gone. But Jenny and George just thought that was strange. They could still see pieces of the tin roof and their appliances, some were still, you know, in the kitchen area. They hadn't been reduced to ash. So why would the bones of their children have been? Well, they began to believe that their children may still be alive. And maybe they were kidnapped from the home before the fire even started. They began putting together all of the unusual situations that had happened previously. Even just that night, the phone call that came in was strange. The loud thud and rolling sound on the roof. What was that? We don't know. The missing ladder. The trucks that wouldn't start. But there were other strange occurrences that actually took place weeks before the fire started. We'll get into that now. George Sauter was an anti-fascist. Like, he was adamant about his political views and would argue with people. You know, he was known to just be very outspoken when it came to his feelings, especially on um, Mussolini. In 1945, Mussolini was executed. He was the prime minister of Italy, and George Sauter was known to make critical and disrespectful remarks against him. A couple of months before the fire, a life insurance salesman showed up at the Sauter's house. Of course, they, you know, try to sell their shit, say their whole spiel. But George was like, nah, I'm good on the whole insurance. Thanks, see you later. Well, when he declined to buy the insurance from the man, the man became irate and yelled that George and his house would go up and smoke with his children inside for George's remarks against Mussolini. Well, that escalated quickly. Like, what the fuck? I... You know, times were different back then, of course, but if that happened to me now, I'd be like, 911, um, somebody just threatened to kill me and my children for my political views. I don't know. It seems weird, but... Around that same time, a stranger had come by the house looking for work. Now, this was a man that was completely unfamiliar to George and Jenny, just some guy looking for some way to make money. Well, George started talking to him, and him and the man walked to the backyard... And that's when the man pointed at two fuse boxes and said that they would cause a fire one day. What? Where? Who are you again? And why do you think that my fuse boxes are going to cause a fire? Well, George just thought it was weird. And he actually said that he had just had all the wiring checked in his home. Um, and it was fine. Like the electrical company had come out, checked all of his wiring. Everything was fine. Now, I'm not sure why they went out there. I can only assume that that was probably something that was done quite often to get your wiring checked and you're back in the 40s I don't know it seems like mm, might be a little bit sketchy and since the houses were all built of just like timbers it could go up really quick like I don't know I'm not sure but anyways George was just like that's why would you say that that's weird so getting back to it, um, after the fire the fire chief asked the solders to leave the site undisturbed of course they wanted to do a more thorough investigation, which you'd think that George and Jenny would have been like, yes, do that investigation. We want to know what happened. We want to know how the fire started. However, weirdly enough, four days after the fire, George backfilled the basement with five feet of dirt, um, essentially covering up any evidence that remained. Why did he do that? He said it was because it was just too hard to look at. Um, but if you're concerned that your children didn't die in the fire and the fire chief asks you not to do anything, like leave that site alone, 
I mean, it could essentially would be considered a crime scene if you think that something malicious happened there. Why are you going in and filling it with dirt? Like you're covering up any type of evidence that would be left there. I don't know. Like I said, it's just a weird, weird case. Well, the next day there was an inquest done and the fire was ruled as an accident caused by faulty wiring. The children were said to have died in the fire. On December 30th, the Sauter parents received the death certificates for each of their five children saying that they died in the fire, uh, probably due to smoke inhalation. Still, George and Jenny were not convinced that their children had perished in the fire. The ladder that was missing that night was found at the bottom, bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the home. How did it get there? George says he has no idea. Also, the family and neighbors remember seeing the Christmas lights still on during the early stages of the fire. So if it was caused by electrical issues, wouldn't all the lights been off? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an electrician. Jenny began doing her own investigating. Boss Jenny, which, I mean, you'd sort of have to if you're questioning that one child, one, one children, one child that would be hard enough. Five children died and you're not certain that they died in the fire? Hell yeah, I'd be doing my own investigating too. Along with questioning the authorities, ruling on the fire and insisting that her children were still alive, she began burning small animals. Like she would set up a little pile of these small, you know, like small bones and light it on fire and have it burn the similar way that the fire burned inside their home. And in each experiment she did, there were still bones remaining. She also consulted with her friend who worked at a crematorium, and she confirmed that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. That's far longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. Um, they said that it was, it was gone. It was down to rubble within 45 minutes. From the time the fire started, it only took 45 minutes for the whole house to be completely gone which is very scary. Well, of course, time went by, and when spring approached, the Sodders planted flowers where the house had crumbled as a memorial for their children. Jenny only wore black clothing as she was in constant mourning after their loss. She found herself tending to the garden very often. Well, while Jenny was taking care of the garden one day that spring, Sylvia was in the backyard when she found a small pineapple-shaped item. Uh, George said it was like a... It looked like a little a hand grenade. Well, George stated he believed that it was some type of incendiary device. And it had, that was probably the sound that Jenny had heard. He believed that it had been thrown on the roof, rolled down, which in turn is what started the fire. Well, in 1946, accounts of the night started coming in from neighbors and passersby. One lady who said that she was watching the fire from across the road stated she saw the five children in a car. They were peering out the window when the car drove past the house during the fire. So she's watching this house burn down, and this car slowly drives by. All these kids are peering out the window, and she believes it is the five children that are missing. Well, another woman who worked at a as a waitress in a cafe claims she served the five children on Christmas morning. She said they were there with two adults whose identities couldn't be confirmed, of course. Uh, another woman said she saw the five children with two males and two females. And she said these 
Adults look to be of Italian descent. She said she saw them at the hotel that she was managing. She worked there and they all came to check in. Now, she couldn't remember the exact date of their stay. She did say that when she tried to talk to the children, one of the men looked at her angrily and then turned around, said something in Italian very rapidly to the whole group, which caused everybody to just stop talking to the hotel worker. Like, she's like, it was really weird. They just, they all turned off. I couldn't talk to any of them. So the only other thing she recalls is that they left very early the next morning. So, you know, all of these leads are coming out, all of these strange occurrences that, you know, are more so leading to the fact that the kids, something weird happened. This was not an accidental fire and these kids may not have died in that fire. So the Sodders decide it's time to hire a private investigator. So they hire C.C. Tinsley to help get to the bottom of the children's disappearance. Tinsley learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened George, uh, you know, when he came by and he got all irate and said that he was going to burn down the house or whatever because of George's anti-Mussolini um, remarks, he was actually on the coroner's jury during that inquest that ruled the fire an accident. This was told to the Sodders. He also learned of the rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris did find a heart. Weird. Like there's no bones around, but there's a heart. Well, he said that he heard in this rumor that Morris found this heart and packed it into a metal box and buried it in a secret location. What the fuck? Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George. George and the private investigator, C.C. Tinsley, went to Morris and confronted him about what they knew or what, you know, about what they heard. Well, Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box. They dig it up. They open it up and find what looks to be a, you know, a piece of meat, like a, some sort of organ. Well, they took what they find to the local funeral director, who, after examining it, told them it was actually a fresh beef liver that had never even been exposed to a fire. Well, later on, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville, but Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally, but he had supposedly placed it in there in hopes that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. I am so confused. So Morris, F.J. Morris, so he is claiming that he did find pieces of bone and such, but he kept it from the family because he was trying to keep them from all that pain and agony on Christmas Day. But now he's saying, you know, I had the stuff, but instead of giving them the actual bones I found or telling them that I found bones, I'm going to take this beef liver Tell my minister that I have the heart of the children. I found it in the fire and bury it and then just hope that that rumor gets out to, like, I don't know. How the fuck are you helping people, Morris? Like, how in the hell you say that you placed it in there in the hopes that Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire? I don't know what kind of mental... I don't know. I don't know why they would. I have no idea. Moving on. 
1949, George saw a picture he himself. He was flipping through a magazine. He finds a picture of a girl who he believes closely resembles his missing daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to New York, but was denied access to see the girl after arriving at her school. <laughs> That's probably a good thing that they wouldn't allow him to go into the school to find the girl. Well, finally, George does what should have been done in the first place. He hired a pathologist to supervise a new search of the remains in the basement. But remember, George covered all of that up a few days after the fire with a whole shit ton of dirt and then planted flowers over it. So after excavating the area, they find several bone fragments, very small bone fragments that look to be vertebrae. The fragments were sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute, Marshall T. Newman. He confirmed that they were lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. Newman's report stated, Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. Thus, given this age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children, since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time. His report also said that the bone fragments had not appeared to have been in the fire. It was thought that they came from a pile of dirt that George had put over the ash and rubble. <sighs> That's also just sort of baffling because, yeah, I agree, I don't think it's probably from the kids, but what the fuck kind of dirt was George hauling that has bones in it? Like digging up a graveyard or something? I don't know. I don't know a lot about this case. Well, I do know a lot, but what I know doesn't help me out very much. So here we are in the 1950s. The case was actually getting much more attention. Like they, the Sodders were persistent and having all those children who were, you know, some of them were in their 20s. They were able to help out with this. So the family erected a billboard showing the faces of the five missing children. It read, what was their fate? Kidnapped, murdered, or are they still alive? They were also offering a $5,000 reward to anyone who could provide info that would lead to the discovery of their children. The FBI did become involved. Uh, they did some further investigating, but actually closed the case after two years of useless leads. Like, they just couldn't find any concrete evidence or leads, of course, that would give the Sauters any answers. So they were like, you know, we got other things to worry about. We can't keep doing this. You're on your own. So the FBI was out. Well, the Sodders were back to investigating on their own. They would never give up, essentially. George would end up following all of the leads and traveling to talk to them in person. Because of the reward that was offered, there were several people coming out of the woodwork. Well, in 1967, Jenny went out to retrieve the mail, and in it she found a letter addressed to her. Only her. Inside was a picture of a man who looked to be about 30 years old. On the back of the photo, it read... Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, spelled L-L-I-L, A90132 or 35. The family agreed that the picture did closely resemble Louis, but, you know, it's like, what were they saying on the back of it? What was all that gibberish? What is that A90132 or 35? Like, was somebody, was this somebody that really 
had some information for them or was it somebody just playing a horrible fucking trick which seems like a lot of people did like people just wanted that reward so they were doing all sorts of things to try to get it so this picture they get um you know they don't that's all it is it's a picture with that rambling on the back so again george and jenny hire another private investigator now there was no return address on that letter that envelope that they got with the picture but it was postmarked postmarked in Central City, Kentucky. So they hire this PI and they just send him out to Central City to see if he can figure anything out. Well, he disappears. They never hear from the PI again. Um, they never see him. They never get any information. Of course, then time just keeps ticking on and they're not really getting any concrete evidence of any sort. Well, George ended up actually passing away in 1969. Jenny passed away in 1989. All of the children have since passed away. The most recently was actually Sylvia. Just this year, in 2021, she passed away. All of the siblings did agree with their parents that they, did, they didn't believe that the children died in a fire. Um, there were some things that they came out with later on. Uh... I believe one of the boys, the boys that came from the upstairs bedroom that made it out, they stated that they went into one of the kids' rooms and saw them in there and yelled for them to come out, but they didn't make it. And later on, they changed their story saying that they didn't actually open up the door to see them. They just yelled for them. So you, it is a, a very scary situation. So of course, you're panicked. You're not thinking straight and you're definitely not going to remember exactly what happened. So were those kids in the house at that time? Did anybody see them? We're not sure. Um, with the trucks too. Sorry, I just threw my shit off my desk. With the trucks also not starting, they thought that was very strange. But one of the boys later on said that they possibly could have just flooded the engine because they just kept, you know, like they were in a panic to get it started. So they just kept pushing on the gas. So they could have flooded the engine. Um, but, you know, so nobody... Yeah, we just don't know. There is so much that's being said about this. Um, Sylvia, I think I was saying before I got sidetracked, Sylvia said that she remembered, she was only almost three at the time, she could remember everything that night. Like, she remembered when her dad broke the window to try to get back into the house. He had cut his arm and he was bleeding. Um, she believed, too, that her siblings did not die that night. So, could it have been, like, do you think that maybe George left Italy because of his political views or possibly his family's political views or possibly they were in the Italian mafia and something happened that he just, like, people were maybe after him and or his family. And so he came over to the States but then still had these very prominent views on Mussolini and ended up, you know, of course, in the same little community that has a bunch of Italian immigrants did they track him down? Did somebody from Italy or somebody from the mafia track him down? That is honestly what I think is probably most likely. Um, you know, of course, the ruling never changed. Those kids were said to have died in the fire. It's just the family that was like, no, we don't believe that they did. And I like the phone call they got that night. Don't you think that maybe that was somebody calling to just check and make sure that they were home and they're like okay they answer we'll ask for this stupid person hang up the phone the incendiary device or the small 
like pineapple looking bomb in the backyard. Where the fuck did that come from? You know, Jenny said that she heard something hit the roof and come down. Could that have started the fire? I don't know. Just all these things. I definitely don't believe the fire was accidental. I believe the fire was started on purpose. What I'm not quite sure of is were those children still in the house? Um, that I'm not, I, I don't know. It's just so hard. Like you want to believe that maybe they, they were still out there somewhere. You know, I'm sure after 70 years, they have all since passed, but it was also another little rumor that maybe the kids, because they were all of, you know, they weren't like babies. Maybe the kids had all like planned to get away. Maybe there was something going on in the house that we didn't know about. And so these kids are like, all right, and Christmas night, we're going to run off and we're going to set the house on fire. I don't, that's a horrible thought, but you just don't know. Like what, there just seems to be so many strange things going on that you can't simply say, yep, it was a electrical fire. They died. Like it, you just can't say that. I don't know how anybody could just be like, yep, that's what happened. I can't, but anyways, of course I will put all of my sources into the show notes here. For some reason, I have a feeling I'm missing something just because there was so much in this story. Like, it, there was a lot of things I did leave out just because it seemed to me like it it was just more so hearsay than anything that anybody actually knew. Of course, I threw a few things in there like that. But So, yeah, if you guys are interested in this story, I suggest you just do your own research. Read. There's so many articles out about it. Um, books, even. The family stayed very adamant in their search for these kids, even after they were grown. Like all those, you know, Sylvia just died in 2021. And you can find articles that she's was still in her older age talking about this and trying to find out what happened to her siblings. So it's horrible that they had to pass not knowing exactly what happened. But if you have any information that would lead to the any more knowledge of what happened to these kids, let the authorities know. Let me know. I'd like to know. <laughs> Alrighty, folks. Well, thank you for listening. If you like this story and you have an idea um, of a case or a story you'd like us to cover, go ahead and send us an email at realtwistedsisters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at real.twisted.sisters. I suggest you go on there and check out the new shirts I got. Um, they're pretty awesome. If you would like a shirt, just go ahead and DM me on Instagram. And if you would like to become a member, we said earlier, go to www.patreon.com slash realtwistedsisters. And one more note I keep forgetting to put in here. If you do enjoy our show, if you like the stories that I'm coming up with, please rate me. Uh, give me a review. If you don't like it, just don't listen to me, please. <laughs> but, and, you know, download it, whatever. Follow me. Follow my podcast. What, whatever you can do, just hit all the buttons on it, all right? Just do all the things on there under my podcast. Spotify, you can't really do on anything on, but if you're listening on another platform, just hit all the likey buttons and send me a little nice comment. 